My name is Collins Ofosua Pierre. I'm Ghanaian, 22, currently in Ghana. Uh, and yeah, I completed HSC University, BSc Computer Science, right? And after completing with the BSc Computer Science and after. Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewafo. And I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. Some, some industry experience, right? I, I started working, I started doing my first internship when I was about 14, right? Um, I was working with, and with a bank that works with uh, investments. And then I moved into the pensions, um, the pensions field, right? So basically I was working with a firm called um, United Pensions Trust, which was affiliated with Vanguard Assurance in Ghana. And that is where I got more curious when it comes to industry because I started to meet people in the marketing. I went into the IT department just to like help with data entry and those kind of things to start with. But then over there, I interacted with people in marketing. I would see people, you know, going around pitching businesses, writing proposals and those kind of things. I was wondering what they were doing. So I started getting snoopy, you know, asking questions, trying to learn a bit more. And then, yeah, it kind of like helped me on my way. So when I entered um, senior high school at Presec, you know, Presec <laughs> Presbyterian uh, sec- Secondary High right in Ghana, which is a mission school, I did science with biology. But then because of my experience seeing the business field and seeing how people were going around doing business and those kind of things, I was very highly inclined towards trying out the tech stuff, right? Because I wanted to see a way of, linking the science that I was doing with the business in some way, shape or form, right? And what was the goal between everybody was using text to, you know, enter data, make presentations and all those kind of things. So yeah, I was thinking, how can tech help, right? And how can also help with the biology with tech and uh, with the business with tech? Because I like to at that point in time. And that's where I started interacting with artificial intelligence. That's why I started interacting with robotics and that's why I started looking at data analytics because I realized that it cuts across on every industry and it touches on every part, right? And um, being somebody who had been in Britain for quite some time in my early my early stages, my parents made sure that we we were well traveled, right? So we were in Britain, we were we were in Wales uh, specifically, Wales, North London, Ireland, sometime in Germany in my early stages. And yeah, from that experience and from the experience in Africa, I don't know, people felt just generally happier here. And um, I enjoyed that happiness that came from being here. So I felt like if if I want to bring anything from my experience abroad into Africa, that would be more comfortable for me than going back to, you know, the foreign spaces and trying to find that same happiness I was finding in Africa, which was naturally occurring. So yeah, that's, that's basically um, the motivation that took me through. So even in understanding AI and understanding robotics, I was looking for a way to implement solutions in Africa. And that's why I went to Ashesi University. If you've heard of Ashesi University, it, um, it was set up by somebody called Patrick Awar, right, who was an ex-Microsoft. He, he was at Microsoft, right, and he decided to come back trade visionary leaders, right, to train visionary entrepreneurs, ethical entrepreneurs, 
right? So I heard about the vision of a Shesi. I got inspired because that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to solve problems in Africa and in Ghana and make the place around me comfortable rather than running to comfort, right? So yeah, that's that's um, that's why I went to a Shesi University to go and follow the tech stuff instead of continuing the biology and then going to do medicine. Um, yeah, so I followed the tech stuff, give to put medicine to one side. One day we'll go back to medicine. One day I'll, I'll probably talk about it later, and I'll probably talk about it later in the in the um, discussion. But then, yeah, one day we'll go back to medicine. One day we'll touch back on law because I I like policy. I like um, legal compliance policy and those kind of things. Um, and then uh, yeah, one day we'll go back to do things. But for now, I'm looking for a way to make the tech cut across, bridge the gap, and then transition into the other things. Um, passionate about. Yeah. That's lovely, colleagues. You see, um, I can see the energy that is boiling in you. I, I would really need more more of you in Africa. No? The energy oh. is in the youth. That is what we talk about often, no? especially when we have youth that are ambitious. No? Don't just wait for people to do it for you. No? So that is very important. We're just starting. I'm beginning to fall in love with what you're doing. All right, now, let's talk a little bit about your company. So, CLID is a term in biology that means species, and we wanted to make an impact in the species, right? So, CLID industries, that's where the synthesis from. So, it came from my biological way too much. Um, yeah, um, so basically, yeah, we wanted to make a change in, 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 in the species through industry and through tech, right? I feel like everybody has their role when it comes to the overarching goal of the African continent, right? So like everybody has a part to play, whether it's being a follower, being a leader, being a servant leader, being any type of leadership, right? I'm a servant leader. I try to be very um, involved in everything that my, my partners are doing. Every time I, everything my teammates are doing, I don't call them employees, I call them teammates because we came to work on this together, right? And they're all very, very smart people. So. Yeah, I can't, I can't really say, oh, they are just employees and I'm just here to come and tell you guys what to do. No, no. Um, I'm here to work with, with them. I feel like everybody has a role, right? And the, even in as much as in Africa, where you don't limit yourself to things because I think almost every African does more than one thing. Even if you don't do anything, you add music and dance to whatever you do on a regular basis. A lot of people do multiple things, multiple things that some people see as a specialization abroad, right? A lot of Africans do side hustles and all those kind of things. But then as much as that, there has to be a master in each field, right? That's kind of like everything centers around or can help develop that field or that pioneer in that field, right? So in um, how do you call it, in the pharmaceutical spaces, for example, if we had pioneers in pharmaceuticals in Africa, you would see the growth of the other guys who do other things around the pharmaceutical thing, getting to feed off of that loop. So it sets up that ecosystem in that setup. So we're trying to be the central point for tech and experimental tech development, right? So our main objective is to help African businesses and African individuals grow. How do you grow? Gain knowledge or you gain information or you need data, right? In Africa currently, if you want to go and look for data on something, it's relatively hard to find, right? And even if you're trying to manage your business, right, and you have a lot of track record of all these data entries. You keep records of your sales and all those kind of things. At the end of the day, how do you make, how do you 
derive any information from all those entries and all those things that you've taken? Do you just look at the numbers and say, oh, okay, so this was my highly, um, highly valuable quarter or something, or this is a quarter where the business really did well, right? But once you see those things, what then is the next step, right? How do I improve that? How do I maximize that? How do I increase that efficiency so that I don't overwork stuff? Like if I'm a farmer, for example, I don't overwork the ground. I don't need more fertilizer to put more um, nutrients back in after I overwork the ground over and over again. Instead of doing that, I make maximum use and maximum efficiency when the efficiency is actually noticeable in the data trend. That's where our firm comes in by making that data analytics tech available. First of all, the IoT tech that captures that data, because like I said, a lot of data in Africa, you know, it's, it's either written or, you know, you, you happen to go and do a research and find something on it, right? But then you need IoT devices to capture those, that data in real time. So temperature and humidity values, um, motion tracking, uh, some drone technology, some visual, um, some visual recognition, AI, that, those kind of things, right? To capture the data in real time. So if I'm farming this farmland, I can tell that, okay, the soil, um, how do you call it, the soil component is at this level currently. There's this amount of soil moisture in there. I've, I need to water this place because I don't water this place frequently. It's, it's pretty dry, right? How do you usually tell? Maybe you go and touch the ground and you go and see. But then in this case, the data will be able, the IT device will be able to capture that in real time and tell you that, You've not watered this ground in the past how many hours, right? So you just realize, and then you go, go and take a look, right? If there's anything that's happening, maybe some pest or something has come in, instead of you using pesticides, you can spot where in your fences that the pests are penetrating through because of the, the motion trackers, the IoT devices. And then you go and take a look, you go and find where the pests are coming through, right? Then from there, the data analytics side will help you to pick that data and make sense of it. Just basically, okay, this is where the pests were coming through. This is how much pesticide I produced because I'm catching them instead of spraying everything, right? This, this is how much um, we decide I'm reducing because I'm seeing the gaps in my field where weeds can come through or something, right? And then once you have that data analytics available, what, how then do you make sense of that information? Because, I mean, we have a lot of people who um, are in the farming spaces who don't use these tools much. They don't use the they use data analytics stuff, these um, IoT things, right? They just want to go and plant seeds, right? They just want to go and raise stuff. They have a passion for they have a passion for growing things. Growing things have been passed down from generation to generation in their families. So they're doing that. But then, how then do we help them understand the data that they're seeing? And that's where the AI comes in. AI is not anything new. It's not anything massive, it's not anything magical. Just imagine AI as, um, how do you put it? Let's say, let's say you have a computer, right? Usually, or let's say you have a cal calculator, right? Usually you tell the calculator one plus one, and then the calculator will give you an answer. So you give the calculator, and you give the calculator um, items or objects, right? And then you give the calculator the instruction of what to do with the object, and then to give you an answer. So if you don't add a plus in between the one and the one, a calculator won't do anything with those two numbers, right? Even though you're giving it objects. If you put just plus in there to ask you what numbers am I asking, right? But then AI comes in to come in, should I say, mitigate that, right? So you don't have to tell the machine that, that's, that's where machine learning comes in. You don't have to tell the machine at every point in time that when you see A, B, or C, do exactly this. You want the machine to be able to synchronize that, okay, if A, B, and C are happening, this is probably what should be the next step, 
right? So what we build is something called suggestive AI. Right? So basically, if you notice, if the AI system notices a couple of trends, it will suggest you certain steps to take to make a system more efficient or to make your, your um, warehouse safer, to make your uh, farming process more efficient, to handle your smart security and give you those suggestive steps. And as well as that, they have the active AI, which would actually take action while you're not around. So maybe if, um, how do you call it, an alarm is supposed to go off and you're asleep or something, they will take that action for you, call the police, instead of like you having to wake up to call the police yourself call the police for you, so maybe, but maybe you're, you're a deep sleeper, right? <laughs> or maybe you are really tired. So yeah, that's, that's how, that's how, um, that's what we're trying to do, right? That's the kind of stuff we're trying to produce, provide for African businesses and African individuals. So basically we have systems that serve you domestically or while you're at home, and we have systems that help reduce the stress at work, right? By making all those mundane tasks easier, you don't need to stress why is my business falling or why is my business failing? We noticed that a lot of startups were failing because they would come in hot, the marketing campaign would get everybody excited and everybody buys what they're talking about in the first few quarters. But then later on, because people kind of realize that, oh, maybe I don't really need this thing or times get really hard, people kind of lose interest and that initial interest is not built on properly. So having that information available helps sustain your business, right? And helps reignite that fire for a business that you felt was dying because the AI will give you suggestions. What if you add this piece? This firm added this piece and it's working for them. What if you add that piece? What if you add that? What if you try this? This is a new piece of tech that's coming out. What if you added that and then make things possible? Maybe I sell buildings and my buildings are not getting attraction. Maybe if I added a metaverse or a virtual reality thing where people could take virtual tours from around the world and see the buildings, Maybe they'll be more interested in seeing my buildings because all of a sudden they have that, that active feel like, oh my God, okay, this is a building that I can trust actually exists. And this is a space that I can work with. And this person is trying to incorporate tech. So they get more interested. Right? So the AI will give you these kind of suggestions. You connect the dots where you need to connect the dots and yeah, you take action. And that basically helps. That, that's our little part. That's our focus point that we're going to be going into. And then uh, the rest of the parts, we are partnering with a couple of firms to make those other pieces possible, right? Data storage is very important. Cybersecurity is very important. All those other things. Networking is important, right? So we partner with other people who are also focusing on those parts of the um, chain, right? And at the end of the day, we're all human. Human beings are not limited to one thing. We're problem solvers. We're dynamic, right? So, yeah. <laughs> We come together, we bring together what we can do, and nobody needs to work alone. Nobody needs to fight alone. That's very interesting. Uh, that looks like uh, almost very futuristic now, no? <laughs> looking at where we want the, the Africa continent to be, of course. So actually where I want to go from here is, how effective is it in Africa at the moment in terms of robotic science and AI? So when it comes to deployability of any solution, right, and even medicine, right, we need to realize that Every, every continent and every community of people evolved and grew differently. And they will interact with the solutions that we bring up differently. Nobody exists in a bubble, right? Usually people think about solutions, tech solutions, especially, but we usually assume that the user is going to use exactly how we visualize in our head, right? Instead of realizing that how it will be utilized in the Western world and maybe Britain will be different from how it's utilized in Mexico, 
and how it's utilized in Africa and how it's utilized in China. Because people have different experiences and they have different ways of interacting with everything. Even if you take a piece of written literature, how you, the writer, intended for that literature to be interpreted is barely how somebody else interprets that. I did a course in school called Text and Meaning with the Gaste exactly that, right? You might write a statement, give a speech, and then have this goal in mind, right? But then the listener, the reader, whoever is interacting with that will probably have a different perspective based on his experiences or his personal um, upbringing. Similarly, when we are trying to bring solutions from the foreign scope into the local scope, you have to look at that transition gap, right? So what, point, what points do I need to fill in to make that transition easier from step A to step B to step C for a local farmer? In the foreign farmland, most people are using greenhouses and all of that thing. So it's a contained unit. You can track all this data very easily. But then over here, a lot of things are open to the element. How do I link or how do I reach that gap? Right. So we took into consideration, and most other tech firms are coming here to consideration, one thing like networking speed and another thing like power availability. Right. So when you take networking speed into um, into account, right? You realize that networking speed is not as fast as you'd like for it to be. And there's sometimes some interference, right? And power availability, we know that we know the bad PR of lights going out and all those kind of things. So if you're building a system, the, self, the system doesn't have to be too internet dependent and too power dependent, right? Too power dependent. So that's that's how we've adulterated our systems to be able to work over here. Right? So basically, um, when we when we design systems, it comes with solar tech because we have abundant sunlight. You know, every time you have a problem, you, Mother Nature gives you another solution or another way to go around solving the problem. Right. So we decided to go with solar tech because we have abundant sunlight. Right? And we decided to go with what we call local area service. So basically, instead of a server always having to reach out to the internet or having to reach out to wherever I have to reach out to in a crowd, wherever I am, right? It stays within the loop on whoever's premises we set up the system. If it's a warehouse, it should be independent and for that warehouse, right? If your internet goes off, you still have that. If your lights go off, you still have that because you have your solar battery pack. If anything should happen, you still have that, right? So we augment the, the um, how do you call it, the solutions. We don't just pick it up, okay, this is working in the West, bam, in Africa, straight up. No, you have to take a look at the scenarios over here, the problems over here, the advantages over here. We have a resource advantage in Africa, for example. We have a sunlight advantage in Africa, for example. A lot of pioneering tech hasn't been tested here. So you take all those, those constraints into consideration, and then you find a way to adjust your solution. Right? So that's what we did personally. Um, around something, around getting around something like uh, the, should I say, the low um, risk-taking appetite in Ghana, right? The fact that selling a smart solution to individuals might take a long time. We decided to partner with firms that could give us economy of scale. So, for example, for the smart housing solutions, we partnered with a couple of real estate firms, um, Green Park, Mizumi, all those firms, right? That way, when you're automating the building, you automate this with the realtor. 1,000 buildings, 6,000 buildings, 10,000 buildings, all at once. Instead of worrying about selling it to 10,000 people every time, right? Because then you'd have to convince 10,000 people that buying a smart home security system is better than getting a dog, for example, 
Right. Can you explain shortly what you mean by security house in a way that at least a layman can understand it? It's a security building or oh, smart okay. building, as it were. Okay, so basically, um, I think most people have interacted with stuff like Amazon, Google Home, or those Google Home, Amazon, um, Alexa, those kind of setups, right? So basically, a smart a smart home security is meant to find um, so I say points of entry, right? So if I have a house, right? Which point of entry can somebody enter if they want to come and steal from me? We know that the um, burglary numbers in Africa, for example, last last year was about um, 40, 46,000 cases right, in, um, in Ghana, right? So we know that, okay, there's going to be probably a burglary and um, if you feel like there's probably going to be a burglary, right? And the burglar can use the front door, the back door, the windows, and all those kind of things, we put in sensors, right? So the sensors are the IoT devices that pick up information, right? So basically they pick up whether somebody has actually broken into the building or something, right? Once that trigger is picked up, instead of just a regular alarm that people usually rely on for the alarm to scare the criminals away. I mean, people can just ignore alarm these days and they just go and turn it off, right? So instead of the regular alarm that just triggers and scares people off, we try to get the police and the emergency people, based on the user's discretion, notified instantly. Right. So basically that creates a case where um, that creates a case where if, instead of the situation where um, how do you call it, you have to call the police after the criminals have already left and now the police have to figure out how to find that person, which is usually difficult after the person has already left. Because um, how do you call it, finding DNA and cross-checking DNA, it's not as easy as it is in foreign places. Um, cross-checking visual recognition stuff, it's not as easy as it is in foreign places. So then how do you stop criminals, right? By stopping them when they are there, instead of like waiting for the person to leave the place. So we're trying to bridge that gap, right? By having the police notified the moment the crime is taking place, instead of after the crime is taking place, now the police has to come and do damage control. And plus it's better to prevent the problem from happening than to try and solve assets that's already taking place, right? So yeah, we, we're trying to, um, that's, that's the system that we have for smart home security, for example. The AI system that runs that is called Ivy, right? Um, we have one for, um, how do you call it, warehouses. So people who store goods, people who have um, shops and all those kind of things can set that up in their building just to protect their goods and their wares, right? And then, yeah, all the other um, setups come in as well. Thank you so much for that. All right. Now, I think you touch an area that is very sensitive and very important for Africa. For many countries in Africa, which is about power, no? and you uh, made mention of the fact that, uh, of course, we have resource advantage in that there is solar that is abundance in Africa, no? and yet countries like Nigeria will continue to remain in the dark. So tell me, which are the opportunities Taking, uh, taking advantage of technology, uh, uh, can we boast of enable to generate our light, even our own little home? Because if I can build a house now, I can have a solar energy, I don't necessarily need to connect myself to the national grid, which means I can have light 24 hours. So help me with that. Uh, what are the possibilities? Right. So um, we started by using generic solar cells to charge um, our devices, right? But then what we realized was that generic solar cells have less than 20% efficiency. And which is a, it's a big waste when you, have an, when you live in a country or in a continent that has so much sunlight. The sunlight um, radiance is like half the day 
<laughs> like most of the day, you have a lot of sunlight, right? So basically, if you're just only 20% out of that, it feels like a waste, right? When you can get a lot more and empower a bigger area. So we decided to partner with, this is where the partnerships come in. We decided to partner with a team in, um, a team in Eastern, in Eastern Africa that works on something called a particle dust, which is um, on the physical level, right? It's on the atomic physics level, very useful for generating a higher percentage of solar efficiency. So that's sitting at about 75%. Jumping from 20% all the way up to 75% is massive, right? So if we're able to set that up, so what we're trying to do, like I, I think I, I touched upon that, is we're trying to um, help businesses and people solve problems and get better, right? So later on, what we're trying to do is, aside from just the AI tech and the IoT tech that we're working on, that's just the phase one, right? The phase one is knowledge, understanding what's happening around you and understanding the environment around you and how to go about solving the problem. Stage two is providing those, should I say, highly efficient tech solutions that make things worth buying right? or make things worth investing in. If you were going to set up a solar farm right now and get only 20% efficiency or less than 20% efficiency, that's not the best, right? But then if you're going to set up a solar farm and get 70% efficiency and be able to fuel a small, like a large community or even like a small city or something, right? That makes it all, all the more worth it. And another thing is Africa is in a situation where we can't, we almost, it's almost not the best to try field, try field multiple times. Because and the reason why I say that is we sit in a situation where other continents have tried and failed, right? So we have information on the other people who have tried and failed and have now got this right. If we go and try and feel the same way that they feel, that's not very smart. <laughs> but if we You're feel right. if we feel it, yeah, if we feel a different way, that's worth it. If we feel a different way, we learn a new lesson. Right. But if we make the, exactly the same mistakes that somebody has made and we have written documentation on, you know, the foreign countries have huge data centers and all those data centers that you can get information from and get all those numbers from. They go back 10, 20 years, right? And even some information goes back a hundred years. So if you have all that data available and you have the AI metrics that will help you go through that, because maybe you are lazy like somebody I know, and you don't want to read a hundred years worth of records, right? And you have the AI system that will summarize that for you. Why should you make the same mistakes as these people? You should make your own mistakes at least, right? Or get this right because they've gotten it right, right? So that's, that's what we're trying to do, right? So that's the next stage is bringing in this more experimental tech that's highly efficient and makes you worth investing in. That way you don't try and fail too many times in investing. You invest once and it works because we have a resource advantage, but we don't have a capital advantage when it comes to facing the rest of the world. That's to realize where we are. That's, that's the best thing. That's to realize where we are. We have, a, we have a high resource advantage, but when it comes to a capital advantage, the West and the East currently have a capital advantage. So when we invest in something, we need to make sure it's right, either the first or the second time. All right. So now we don't it, waste. So you, you mean to tell me now, say maybe, for example, you go to um, a small community in Accra with the knowledge that you have, because I find it even very difficult to understand myself. Okay, I'm not an expert in this area, but just a layman thinking, I understand that electricity was invented many years ago. Many, many years ago. So to say that we don't have information of how electricity works should be surprising because all the information are there, you know, how it is generated, what, if, if a different form, a different version of it are available. 
So and we have universities in Africa, people who are studying the same thing. So to say that we continue to remain in the dark, we are outside when the sun is there, when the sun goes off, everybody go inside. You know, we, it doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> it yeah. doesn't really make any sense to yeah. me. It doesn't. It, it's a lot of things. A lot of things on the continent don't make sense when you, when you look at it on the first at the first part, really. Um, because you realize that, <laughs> not even not even really? just the electricity, not even just the electricity thing. When you look at the fact that we have a lot of natural resources here, let's look at America for example. They had just gold when they were moving to America. That was the initial gold rush, right? They were going there to go and look for gold. The first thing they built was railways, and then they added pickaxes and machinery that can be used to source the gold. That's what they did. They didn't think about anything else. They just thought about railways, pickaxes. How are we going to get the gold out? We need to get railways to move the gold, right? But then in Africa, we have so many different resources, but we don't have a, still have a well-structured logistics channel that moves these resources around. How is that happening, <laughs> right? <laughs> How is that happening? How was how is that how was that not the first thing that we thought about when we found out that resources? In Ghana, for example, we have a railway structure that was allowed to die, right? Um, our current president is trying to revive some tracks. Okay. But then it's, it's not it's not at uh, it's not at the level that you would expect a country with so much resource diversity to be at. Right. So once again, that is the long-term focus my firm, because we've kind of decided that, look, we want to make Africa, Africa comfortable, right? And we want to make Africa comfortable together. Um, how do you call it? And the goal is to execute right? and not get executed. So we won't touch on it. We won't necessarily go fight any battles or make noise or anything. What we are going to try to do is we're going to try to solve these problems that look obvious in the private side of things, on the private end of things with networks in the private firm. Because if you look at America, like I said, who built these railways, who built, who provided these pickaxes? It was private firms, it was private individuals, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't the British government that decided to go and set up railways for them because they were a British colony. They, they set those, those things up themselves. After those, after those things were set up, when the oil rush came in, the Rockefellers and all those kind of people, private individuals who set those things up, um, the Bank of America and all those kind of setups, Goldman Sachs, all those banks, private, indiv private individuals, right? So if you take a look at it, all these, and let's even move to other countries like China, Russia, and all those kind of places, right? Private firms are the blood, the beating heart, right, of any sustainable economy. Because unlike governments, who usually change after eight years, after four years, right? Private, private firms can plan for 10, 20, 30, 50, even 100 years, right, if they have a long-term succession goal. So that's what we're trying to do on the private side, plan for the long-term, because we've realized with uh, climate changes and all those kind of things that short-term solutions are not, the, are not the goal anymore. Short-term solutions won't save anybody anymore. And another thing is that Africa has a history or a culture of working together with nature. We've always respected nature and everything that we've done. We've always respected nature when it comes to building the communities and designing our, um, our uh, traditions, the food we eat. We always ate fresh. We always did things as they came, right? We always, we always, we, we even have gods 
that were centered around nature and around natural bodies and natural water bodies and all those kind of things, right? So if everybody or everybody on every continent respected nature as much as Africa did, because we simply felt like if this water body is feeding me, I don't disrespect this water body, right? If this mountain is giving me shade or giving me protection against my enemy, I respect the mountain. If we have that self-identity return, right? And then we pair it up with the technology. So it's not just technology, technology, technology. Industrialization will not save us if we take industrialization over nature because nature will always fight back, right? So we have to realize that in every step that we take and every move that we make and every plan that we make, it should be at least a hundred years thinking into the future. Okay, when we set up this gold mining site and the gold is finished, what is going to happen to the site? Or what is going to happen to this community? Right? If we set up this place and then we over farm it, and now there's, the place is not um, fertile for anything to be grown on, what's going to happen for, to the food source for the people over there? Would they need to continue importing food? That's what we need to start thinking about. And the way we can think about those long-term things is on the private side, because like I said, if I'm in government, right, and I have four years to make sure that I can get another four years to move, sometimes your priority would cool down or would centralize on short-term things. What can I do within that four years to impress the people enough to give me another four years? And by the time I get that second half of four years, what am I doing with four years, right? What am I going to set up with four years? Because by, if I lose, if my party loses power in the next, um, in the next cycle, the people who come in, Will stop or cancel any project that I start in my second four years. We've seen that happen in Ghana alone, where um, we have two parties that usually swap power, MPP and NDC, right? MPP will start a project in the first four years that short term. They'll secure power for the next four years. When they start working in the next four years on a long-term project, NDC comes into power, and then NDC sidelines everything that MPP was doing. So you see all these half-constructed long-term projects half-constructed factories, half-constructed schools, half-constructed hospitals, and all those kind of things, right? Which have been abandoned because even the administration wasn't finished. And the contractors that were working on these projects lost funding the moment the party switched hands because they got the contract politically. So once a new party comes in, they say, no, I'm not working with you, you work with the opposition, right? You're loyal to the opposition, you don't get my contract. I give the contract to somebody else. And that person too comes with his different long-term goal. And the other people too come with his, their different long-term goals. And some people come in with just short-term goals. And then slowly, <laughs> Collins, slowly, I, I promise I'm not going to talk okay. about politics here today. Otherwise, because here we can be hot on it, though. But we're fine. Because yeah, there is yeah, treasure. Yeah, yeah. There is yeah. treasure all here, all though. All I'll say, say is we just need to do it on the private side for long-term things. I believe, you. Yeah. I believe you. I believe you so much on that. Because even, even in Nigeria too, We'll be complaining too much of the government that are failing people woefully. But what I'm beginning to realize, also pay attention to what you're saying now, is that because it's a it's a not to look at, for example, like the uh, the development of American steel industry, talking of Andrew Carnegie and the rest of them. These are private individuals who actually develop the country. Maybe in Africa we have not yet realized that the power actually is within the people. It is the people that need to figure out a way to solve their problem. Then they can control the government. But I, because I think right now, we are thinking that the government is going to provide a solution. And they are not doing it. And we think we are going to wait for them to do it. Every day we continue to ask them, what are you going to do it? And they are not doing it. And they, exactly. because they know that we are going to exactly. wait for them, they continue to take advantage on us. So what if we yes, flip the table around? Yes, please go. Yeah. And, 
and to add to that, really, let's let's be let's take it into perspective a bit. Let's imagine we had one company in a big country like Nigeria that was tasked with solving every problem. They they don't get to specialize on anything. They have to solve everything: logistics, public transit, water, sewage, waste this waste management. Um, how do you call it? Then when they finish, they have to sort, uh, sort out industrialization, natural resource processing, all those kinds. Of, they have to manage all those kinds of things and then set up policies to administrate all those things on their own. It's not possible, right? It, it, it won't be done properly because you need people who specialize in those places that each, each person, okay, you take this, you take that, you take that. At the end of the day, we all come to the table. We run, we run it together. And the way our governments try to go around that is we have ministries that handle that. But then if you have a ministry that handles that, right? How many people in that ministry actually understand that sector or actually gained um, deep education in that sector? Then you realize that, okay, so even in this ministry, they have to outsource the work itself, right? Okay, let's outsource the work now. Who are we going to outsource it to when the private firms are also waiting for us to sort, sort out the problem? Because when we're trying to outsource something right now, the private firms are looking at us to solve the problem. So who are we outsourcing it to? Foreigners. <laughs> so that's the loop. That's the loop we find ourselves in currently. Right? So if if we do our side, if we do our best on the private firm, on the private side, we give not just the people on the ground an option. Now you don't need to just patronize from government. You can patronize from us, right? You also give government an option. Okay, I don't need to produce this stuff myself now. Now I can give this hundreds over to the private firms and then subsidize what they produce. So if they are giving education at this price, I'll give it at a cheaper price so that other people can afford it, right? If they're giving hospital bills at this price, I'll give it at a cheaper price so that other people can afford it, right? So basically the governments can focus their capital on helping other firms set themselves up and subsidizing things that the private firms are providing. That way they don't need to provide everything themselves, manage it themselves, and then come and tax everybody and do everything, right? Because even, even the fact that they have to handle every single phase of things means they need more money to run things. They need to tax people more. They need to borrow more money. They need to bring in more foreign guys who bring in their policies. Because if I'm coming to work in your country and build something for you, I have to do something that benefits myself. Everybody has a bias, right? It's about time Africans are biased for Africans as well, right? Everybody is biased for their country. Okay, how is this going to help my people? How is this going to help my family, right? So about time we also got some bias for the continent. Somebody should be passionate about the continent to be biased for us. And that's why we need to set up that private initiative, right? Together. It's it's not I, I keep hammering on the fact that it has to be a networking goal, right? Um, how do you call it? I'm trying to set up a connection amongst people who are in in experienced sides of industry and um the chiefs, right? The royals, the royals and all kinds of things, because the chiefs are the custodians of that African identity and that African image of protecting nature. But then they also have, they're also the custodians of our history, right? And they also have access to the natural resource because natural resource is usually on the outskirts, not in the city, right? Even if there's any natural resource in the city, you're not supposed to mine where there's so much of the population density. So where do you go and get your resource, your raw materials to do your, end products, to build your end products as a private firm. If I want to build a robot right now, all the materials that I can get are on the continent. But then 
I would go and buy from somebody who's outside, who is getting his raw materials from Africa and just reselling it. Right. So it's business. It's, it's business. No. All right. Now, colleagues, let's look at another important yeah. thing. You know, because now we're beginning to understand that yes, what we really need is to take care of ourselves, ourselves, without even necessarily looking at the government, even though the government actually have a big role to play here because we're going to be talking of policies and the rest of it. Because some of them actually big infrastructure that need to be developed if we want to grow. But let's come to uh, the infrastructure. What do you really need to be able to have a functioning AI? You tell me the, what kind of infrastructure do we really need to build so that it can function? Because without infrastructure, I don't think it can, you can really just idealize it in the head. Right. So currently, firms that need AI tech or firms that work on AI tech and um, all these machine language systems and all those kind of things, they use the cloud, right? So the cloud provides, provides us with the kind of servers and the data centers that we need currently. But then if we have African data centers, which we've partnered with main one and the cited group, the cited team to be able to set up in places like Ghana and Nigeria, for example, if you have those data centers available, then it's easier to do all your server-side computing on the continent. So you can do more complex stuff. You can do more, um, more high-caliber high things. Because once again, like, like I said, we have a resource advantage in Africa. If you want to maximize the, maximize the usage of your resource advantage or maximize industry whilst, whilst protecting nature, right? You need to maximize the efficiency of your computing and you need to maximize the efficiency of how you're industrializing Right. So in order to have that maximum capacity on the continent, we need to have data centers here. Not only do we need data centers here, we need to have Africans, not only funding with funding Africans, but then working with Africans. Just like in, um, how do you call it, just like in any business sector, the more you delegate to people, the more somebody can, somebody can focus on something. Let me give you an example. The iPhone, just the processor of the iPhone, all the parts come from different places in the Philippines and um, how do you call it? And all those different places, right? Before they get into China, for China to do assembly, before they get into the US to get sold, right? They get launched and Apple gets all the proceeds and all those kind of things, right? Oh, everybody does their part before it comes together. Similarly, everybody needs to do their little bit here. We need data centers here. We need people who run those, uh, who run those um, how do you call it? Data analytics algorithms. We need people who fund those people who are trying to build these setups, right? Instead of just, you know, sitting on the money. Because we realize that, I've, I've realized that from, from talking to some people, you know, when you meet, when you meet people in real estate and you meet people in, um, in mineral resource in the country, you happen to meet, you know, the people who have money in the country and the people who have money around the continent. You start to realize that there are a couple of people who are just, you know, sitting on the funds that could be, you know, in the economy function. It's still on the fund. And they're doing nothing with that fund. But it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're still on the money. I mean, they've piled up a lot of money. And in Africa, we don't have a public, uh, we don't have too much of a public system. So even if you're, even if you're worth billions, right, nobody knows. <laughs> like, you can just have your billions in your corner, you know, spend it with your village people, and then spend it with your family. Nobody, yeah, only your... Only your small people will know that, okay, this guy has money. Only the person who's working on your taxes will know that, oh, this guy has money, right? But aside from that, there are so many people to money. If we, if we have people like that investing in the tech that will develop the community, right? Those people will make even more money. <laughs> if you think about it, those people will make even more money. But then 
Um, how do you call it? Uh, from speaking to them, some of them are looking for that inspiration coming from people who actually want to make, right? Because usually what they, what they um, experience is somebody comes to them to come and ask them for money for something, right? But then nobody comes to them saying, I want to solve your problem. I want to solve this problem. And usually when people come to them, the money they're asking for is for just, you know, something mundane, right? But then nobody's coming to them with solutions that really excite them or energize them to like want to do something. So they end up just building another house or buying another car, right? So, yeah, what, what I'm trying to say is you, you create your own luck, right? We need to start some work on the ground. I, we, we started some work on the ground on a small end and then um, by grace, we're meeting more people, we're talking to more people, we're getting to more networks, right? We need to start something from the ground, you network with other people, you build your, you build your network slowly and then you, um, how do you call it? Very soon you meet the right people to get the infrastructure done. Even in the Europe's and um, how do you call it, America's and those places, they built their economies on, on trade and people working together, people functioning together. African trade is sitting at about 14% last time I checked. We need to start working together. That's the first infrastructure we need to think about before we think about data centers and all those kind of things. Data centers and all those kind of things, they can be set up, they're not difficult to get set up. And like I said, we have firms like Main One, the Cited Group, and other firms that are trying to set those things up, right? All right, um, but this data center, uh, what, are, what are we actually looking at in terms of maybe uh, a kind of approximation of what it might cost and what exactly are we even talking about in this data center? How would it look like? What kind of example can we have in mind to as a kind of a contest? Okay, so a data center is pretty much, okay, imagine, imagine you launch a, a, an app, right? Imagine you launch a small app, right? You need a place for that to run. If, if, I'm, if I'm holding an event, or if I'm holding a dinner, I need a place to hold my dinner. Similarly, if I run an application, I need a place for the application to run. If I'm running that on my laptop and my laptop goes off, whoever is enjoying the application will not have access to it. Imagine Zoom, Zoom that we're using is being run off of somebody's laptop. When the person turns off their laptop, we don't get access to the application. So a data center is basically a place where we have computers running 24-7 for multiple tasks, right? Whether it's a web server, um, whether it's a, a, how do you call it, for web-based applications, like applications that run on the web, web pages, websites, and all this kind of thing. But as a data, a data server that just stores people's passwords, information, and all those kind of things. Or, you know, we have different data, data centers for different uh, things, right? So basically, that is how it's, it's generically set up. When it comes to costing, it's based, on, it's based on the amount of data you want to store, the amount of cooling you want to have in that storage unit, right? Because, I mean, imagine having a computer on 24-7. It will get hot. <laughs> it, will, it, will, it will really get hot. So yeah, um, how do you call it? The amount of cooling that you need and how much data or how much information you want to store and what kind of information you want to store. If you want the information to just be records, right? You don't need big, big servers. You, know, you don't need massive servers. Unless you have, unless you're storing records for an entire country or an entire continent or something because records are relatively small files. But if you're storing full out applications, you need bigger data centers. And that's why usually most countries don't even bother. You just set up your data center on the, you just set up with a cloud server. And those guys who think about the cost of managing the data center and all that thing, 
and then you you work on the cloud, right? But then, yeah, when it comes to set up data systems, and those parameters come in. So it can be as as low cost as it can be as low cost as possible and as high cost as possible, based on what you're trying to set up, what you're trying to facilitate, and how much data how much data you're trying to store is the biggest thing. Like if if we're trying to set up data centers for something like Nigeria, I think you need to set up different data centers in at least multiple of the of the states, right? So instead of just one data center for the whole state. Maybe to set up four or five for um, Nigeria. But then there will still need to be much because there are a lot of people in Nigeria. Nigeria is a big country. So uh, all right. Now let's look at um, uh, young Africa because we're trying to inspire them to take action on Let's say somebody uh, get inspired now and they want to start developing uh, some software that they want to uh, keep, that, that want to run on other people's computer. And of course, like you said, this computer needs to be online, otherwise people cannot access the software, the service. Now, does that person necessarily need to have the data situated in Africa or they can have it hosted somewhere? But of course, because like in most of the website that we have today, most of the services I don't really, I not, I not only physically in America. Some of them are hosted in Asia countries, some in Europe, even though the, the mother uh, company might be in the United States. So I'm trying to understand it from there. Do we, must we have a data center before we start tapping into these resources? Tell me something about those areas. Um, so first things first, no country wants to handle the weights of storing data. Right? Everybody wants to share it. You know, unless it's just government stuff, which you want to make sure that it's secure in your country. Everybody wants to share. It. So basically, if you want to, if you are, if you're an African and you want to set up an application, and just hop onto AWS, Amazon's cloud, right, um, or any other cloud server um, setup, right, and then use that, right, because that not only would that take away the headache of managing your service, it, these are internationally bad systems, which usually everybody has a common interest on. Right. If an AWS server goes down, it affects multiple international level companies. That's, that's uh, Spotify and all those kind of level companies. So they make sure that it's up all the time. Right. So basically, because of that security, you can you can set up your system there and then be comfortable. Right. So all you need to think about the first thing you need to think about when you're setting up uh, an application is you first of all the team that are working on it with, right whether the people who can execute or the people who just know how to talk and ideas. If you have ideas, you need an execution team. If you have a team of people who can execute, then you need ideas, people who know how to turn your code or raw skills into finalized projects, right? Or finalized products, right? Instead of just having, you know, just having the raw tech, because so many people have the engineering talent, the raw tech and all this kind of thing. They don't have to package it or use it. Right. So people have the packaging skills, but the engineering team is not available. So let's think about your team dynamics, and then you think about the solution and those kind of things. Data centers and service is not too much of a big deal. And then, yeah, in, in network, if you want to do business in Africa, if you want to make an application in Africa, a network is one of the most important things that um, you should be thinking about from my perspective, because a network, determines once again what it can even determine what kind of team you have because the network can help you source the people who handle execution or the people who handle um ideation 
right? And the network also helps you to find all those partnerships that increase your economy of scale. Like I said, I had to go and network with the real estate people to be able to roll out my smart security solution. Right? Because I realized that if I was going to market to every single Ghanaian, I would need to spend marketing dollars on every single Ghanaian person that I have to convince. So we, we decided to, you know, let's forget about the marketing for now. Then when we have scale, we think about marketing. So we, we stopped the social media, um, we stopped the social media noise for a bit. We stopped the web page noise for a bit. And we focused on having scale with partners, right? So basically, once they sell or once they market their building, they market my system for me. Because if somebody goes to use the building, they interact with my system and they notice, oh, what's this? What's this thing? If they have a friend come and visit, they, oh, wow, what's this interesting thing in your house? Oh, it's just this smart system that comes from this firm. So you have organic marketing, right? And how does that come up? Through your network, right? So your network is very important. If you don't have that network, you'd have to do so many things on your own. And it, it doesn't encourage, should I say, sometimes you don't even need, um, how do you call it, people. Right. Sometimes maybe you don't even need people to help you proceed. You just need that encouragement that, okay, I'm not in this space alone. I'm not working alone. I'm not trying to solve this problem alone. This problem might be bigger than just me, but then because of the unity that we have, um, because of that network that we have, because of that bond that we have, Africans are very communal people. If you look at how we set up our traditional setups and all those kind of things, we're very communal. Even funerals in Ghana epitomize community because we, we don't take it as you've lost your father or your mother. We take it as the community has lost a father or the community has lost a grandparent, right? So yeah, we're very communal people. If you have that motivation coming from the network, it motivates you to go on, it motivates you to work hard and pick up more things. So yeah, network right. is very, very important. Now, motivation to solve our problem. Now, I have something that, that, that might be funny as a question to you, but I will, I will beg you to respond to it. Now, uh, this is related to our solving our problem. Take uh, electricity again as an example. And maybe look, look at a country like Nigeria because we are in darkness in Nigeria. No? Say all the people in this world are dead. The only people that are living is Nigerians and they are in Nigeria. Would they be able to have electricity that we are having today with all the knowledge that is available today? Help me. Two, two ways to look at this, right? The first way to look at it is maybe because of the fact that um, how do you call it? everybody else is dead and except for Nigerians, they spread out and they're able to, you know, in smaller groups, they're able to manage themselves better. Plus, you have that decentralizing effect. If I have to manage five people, it's easier than managing tens of thousands of people. So you can look at it from that perspective. Right? But let's look, at for, let's, let's look at this from another perspective. If Nigeria should exist in a bubble right now, let's say not everybody is even dead. Let's say we put Nigeria in a small bubble, then Nigeria, solve your problems or sort yourselves out, right? When you put, let's, let's look at humanity in general. When you put somebody in a drastic situation, that's when usually they think about solutions, right? I, I can give you an example where I sat in a pitch room with a lot of white um, CEOs and um, people like that from America, right? And you hear the pitches that they're coming up with, they feel relatively small because they have still tag on a small, small, you know, small, small problems, right? Quality of life thing, right? Also, when you sit in an African pitch room, see that these guys are thinking about big, big problems or big solutions because they have, to them, they feel like they have bigger things to tackle than the small, small, relatively small things that 
there or relatively more focused things that the Americans have, right? So in Niger, in Nigeria, for example, you put them in a bubble, right? You you might realize that these guys get frustrated for the first few years because they can't bring in stuff, they can't bring in people, they can't bring in all these things. But then what Singapore has showed everybody is that when you live independently and you rely on the things that you can produce yourself, you transition into that actual independence. Right. When you cut off trade for a bit, and then you start to realize that, oh, shit. I was exporting cocoa, right? How much cocoa do I actually eat in Ghana? Not so much. So maybe I shouldn't use as much land for cocoa. This might sound weird to some Ghanaian, but maybe I shouldn't use as much land for cocoa. Maybe I should reduce the land I'm using for cocoa because I'm producing for only Ghanaians now. What's the rest of the land going to go to do it? Into feeding or into providing products that only serve Ghanaians. Now, what do we eat here? We eat the pounded, the fufus, we eat the soups, we eat those kind of things, right? So those are the kind of things that will start to grow. So we'll stop the situation of importing everything that we eat. And we'll start growing what we eat instead. So in the first few years, you realize some tension because I mean, obviously people will be like, oh my God, there's nothing coming in. Oh, what's happening? What is going on here? And there's a bit of, you know, stress. But then after some time, people start to realize, okay, since nobody is exporting cocoa now, why am I farming all this cocoa? We don't eat that much chocolate here. Let's reduce it small and produce things that we eat on a daily because people will happily eat, um, how do you call it, a heavy meal in the morning over here. It's not about tea or coffee. People will <laughs> happily eat a full meal here. We do. At, at, yeah, at 7 a.m., people would happily eat a full meal here and go through their deal with that. So that, that, that is what I think would happen. Right? People, you know, human, human beings are very dynamic once again. We are very dynamic problem solving. If you put us in a solution of dire constraints, we usually, find a, we usually find a way to solve the problem. One of the things that is kind of a problem in Africa is that in as much as you get frustrated with the government and all those kind of things, most people are comfortable enough not to do much about it because they'll eat tomorrow. They'll go to work in the morning. Something else would attract their attention. They would go on Twitter and go and laugh. They would talk to their friends and, lo- and forget about their problems. They'll think about something else. They'll go to, and we're a very religious continent. So they'll go to church, go and pray about the problems and put it in God's hands. So usually people don't get to the level of frustration now, ginger them to do something. So we have this weird situation of comfort here. That comfort was taken away by that bubble. There'll be an initial period of stress, drastic stress. But then look, after some period, people start to, one by one, people start to like notice small, small kinks in that armor and then do things. I'm not saying that's the best way to solve a problem right now because we, we exist in a global village currently. But then if we start to think about those things, even before we are put in a bubble or even before anything drastic should happen, we would realize that, okay, no, it's not that terrible over here. We can actually do things. Right. And for me personally, right, when I see people complaining on social media, I, I have I have social media accounts that I don't make noise. For. I just go on social media and go and watch other people. You know, when I see people complain on social media, I just make a note of it. Okay, if you can make noise about this problem, it means you're you're willing to pay for it to get solved, right? So I solve it. <laughs> that's what I do. Pay for the cost. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. If if, if you are if you're complaining about electricity problems, I'm going to work with a team that works on solar tech. When we bring the solar tech, we pay for it. Simple. I'm not going to make noise, 
and not come in look for likes or look for followers or when you know disturb everybody all around the place and be posting jokes here and there i just be waiting for people to complain about things and i'll i'll, I'll listen i'll listen I'll, i'm a good i'm a great listener i'll listen to things i'll pay attention i'll make notes then two three years or maybe a few months i'll bring you a solution you will complain about this thing itself now pay for it that's all with all the knowledge that we have today i'm really interested in the possibility that one day we can have access to the basic things in life. I don't think it is right that in, the, in 2022, some people should still go in darkness in Africa. I don't think that we should still base our life on daylight and when the light goes off, we just go to sleep. I don't think it is right. I believe that if we could have yeah. stable electricity, at least the minimum, a lot of people in Africa will be able to do things. They will be able to connect to the grid. They'll be able to do a lot of things. That is that is very true. If if we had stable electricity, we'll be able to solve a lot of things. Or we'll be able to connect to more people and talk to more people more consistently, right? Because I've seen a couple of pitch once again, I've seen a couple of pitch rooms where somebody has to drop off because their network goes off because the lights go out or something. Right. So um yeah, that's I think that's the first thing that we should look at tackling, right? We should look at uh, solving that on the private side. Once again, on the private side, we look at solving that, and that way, and that way, we have um, should I say, should I say more consistent control over it because it's not based on somebody's political agenda. Right? Um, on the private side, if you try to solve that problem, then you go to the next step, which is networking, right? Um, internet accessibility, you know, improving the networking availability around the continent. Then you go, the, you go to the next step, right? So step by step, we'll get there. But then let's start, we'll start with um, energy currently. Um, like I said, we're working on a team that's solving the solar, the solar problem or trying to sort out the solar problem. So we're taking an actual action to make that problem happen. Because once again, if I see somebody's willing to complain about it, I'll, I'll look for a way to try and solve it for them. So yes, um, I, you've brought up energy a lot today. So uh, we'll work with the people who are in the energy space and try to solve that problem. Um, with regards to with regards to out of all the knowledge that's available, right? Once we solve that problem, what we need to think about in Africa is identity, right? Because the identity problem is a very is also a very big issue here. The idea that you can't trade on the continent, so you can't trust a, a, something that's produced by a company that's based on the continent, right? Somebody would rather go to the market and go and buy something from. Um, China or something, and to buy an African-made product. And because of that, it causes this weird chain reaction where now these people have to pay so much to produce fewer products. So now they have to price it so high because they don't have an economy of scale, right? So people are like, oh my God, African products are so expensive, African stuff is so expensive. It's because they don't have that kind of scale to move enough articles to make it cheaper, right? So how do you call it? Um, when it comes to these kind of things, right, that identity setup, I look again once, uh, to the to the east, right? To Singapore, to China, to Japan. But China and Japan started producing cars and those kind of things. And South South Korea as well. But they started producing cars and those kind of things. People are saying people use China as a term for something that means low quality in Africa. And people are like, oh, this is China. This is China. I mean, there's no high quality. You have to go in for something that's German made or that's um, Spanish made or something like some something that's you know European standard, something that's Dutch made. Something, Dutch ovens, German knives, and all those kind of things, right? But right now, 
everybody's realizing that, okay, no, the quality of the Chinese stuff is going up, the quality of the Japanese stuff is going up, because they had that self-identity. They believed in the fact that if we kept trying, right, if we kept working at it, we'll get better, we'll get good enough to be able to sell to people. And now they're selling to us. <laughs> they're selling to us. <laughs> what? And they're selling to us and we're consuming. So we have to have that self-identity that I'm going to buy from these African people. I'm going to buy from this African team or this African group, right? And the African people too have to have that self-identity, the producers, I mean. They have to have that self-identity, that the identity that looks, I'm producing so that long-term my continent can have so and so and so. If I price my goods so highly today, people will stop buying, right? I can choose between pricing my goods at a competitive price with the foreign stuff and people continuing to buy and seeing the value and then transitioning forward. Or I can price my goods so high just because I want to make ends meet and then lose my market entirely because people will just say that, oh no, this is too expensive, I'm buy it. Right? So they should also have that perspective and realize that, okay, no, we're, we're trying to solve that problem of African trade on the continent, right? 14% is so, it's so weird for a continent that produces so much raw material, 14%. You know why I was putting my hand here? It looked a little bit stretched though. Let me show you. Yeah. Do you. This car is made in Nigeria. This is mm -hmm. Inosu car. Now, the question is that if maybe, for example, we have a government, just like maybe, for example, in the US, uh, where the government tries to promote their products so that it can sell, so that they can give jobs to the people, because it's a loop, no? It co what goes around comes around. Yeah. If you empower the local yeah. industry, the more people, more local people will have more money. And we will pay more tax. I'm really in support of what you are saying that we need to patronize the local industry. It's yeah. very important. And it, yeah, yeah, it comes from that self. It, can't, it comes from that self image to start with. That okay, I'm African. These are my roots, right? I need to stop thinking about the fact that everybody else this thing is better than us, right? And it, it needs to come from that self image, that self belief. If we start to, if we stop to think about the fact that. Oh, I have to leave Africa, I have to leave this place, or I have to go and do this, I have to go and buy this. And start thinking, okay, if I don't appreciate what I have, somebody else will come and appreciate it for me. Right? When we keep leaving the rural areas and all those kind of things, the Chinese guys come here and they go straight there for the raw material. In Ghana, I've seen it so many times. They go straight there and go for the gold and all those kind of things. And we mom, we are leaving the country, right? So <laughs> If we, if, we start, if we start to realize that, okay, no, it's hold up. Why do we keep leaving and why do these guys keep coming? Why are these guys, what are they coming to look for here? What, what, what haven't we seen here that they've seen wherever they are? If we realize that and we realize that self-image, that self-identity, if we find that self-belief, we'll, we'll be able to break that barrier a bit sooner. If, if we don't and we keep relying on, you know, private people with their private motivation, finding it in themselves to push through and push through, we'll not always have another Kwame Nkrumah. We'll not always have another, you know, great visionary leader who just pushes through everything. We need to start doing something on our own as well. We need to start right. something small. Thank you so much for that. All right. Now, coming back to AI and data as a game, how do you think it can benefit more companies? Tell me about the potential of AI and data analysis in Africa economy. Please help me with that. Okay. So um, when we talk about AI in data collection, right, once again, when I see people complain about problems, 
I'm thinking about how do I solve this? Or how do I get this done? Or how do I get this available for them? So what we decided, what we realized was that you need to pair with other things to collect data, like IoT and like the blockchain. When people think about blockchain, they think about cryptocurrency, think about trading money and all those kind of things. We, that's, not, that's not the first idea we should be thinking about when it comes to blockchain in Africa, because to begin with, you don't have data. Right. So why if there's this tech tool, why don't you be thinking about which users to get that data secured on the continent? So that's what we decided to think about, right? So we're we're partnering with a couple of firms to set up a data chain, a data link on the continent. So basically you should be able to hop into this data link and be able to spot all the information that you're looking for as an investor, as a startup, and as an entrepreneur. Right. If I want to if I want to start manufacturing um I want to start manufacturing chips in uh, batteries, lithium-ion batteries, right? Where can I find lithium on the continent? If I hop onto this data link, I should find that, okay, these five places have lithium-ion on the continent, right? So if I want to sort it, this place has the people who can mine it for me. This place doesn't have the people who can mine it for me, so I have to bring my own guys. This place has a school that can produce those kind of people, but it's not started producing it yet. So maybe I can go and partner with those, that school that's, look, I believe in this space, I believe in the school. This is what I want us to do, right? So basically, once I find that information out, um, another reason why I decided to partner with the Chiefs is the Chiefs are custodians of this kind of information. So once I find that information out, the next step is to work directly with the Chiefs so that whatever you're sourcing from there, please benefits them as well. You can't just come and mine stuff and then take it away, and then the local people lose everything, right? So. In that, in that one scenario, we see the AI partnering with the blockchain, partnering with, uh, um, how do you call it, the data analytics side of things, and then partnering with people, partnering with nature, right? So basically, you see that it's not just about the AI in its own corner, just sorting out things and giving you information of where, what exists, right, as an entrepreneur, as, a, or as an African startup, right? It will give you this information, but then you have to go and talk to the chief. You have to you come... You work together with the elders, right? Okay, the elders will tell you that, look, you can come and mine what you want to mine here. But at the end of the day, I want you to employ my people because I don't, unemployment is high, right? I want you to employ my people to help with your thing. Even if even if it's a cleaning com- company that is close by, that can come and clean the office spaces and the industry spaces at the time, that's fine. Even if it's a, any kind of thing, right? That can help employ people in a local place to work together with you. And then, um, how do you call it? Um, if you want to also partner with the school over there to help produce the people who can work directly in your factory so that you have African talent working in your engineering side of things, you can do that. So we give you all those options with that. As the, the AI will give you the data, the raw information, but we give you all those options on the human level as well. So that it's not just robotic, that you just hop onto this and then you just start clicking, clicking things and you found an, an, an a source of lithium or whatever, and you go straight and start mining it. And then people in the area lose everything because mining activities affect farmland. It affects a lot of things, right? You have to think around ways of doing it and not overdoing it, not hurting nature. Because nature will bite back. I can't stress on this enough. <laughs> nature will always bite back. Nature will always find a way to bite back and balance things out. So we have to think about, we've thought about that synergy. Um, that system is something that will be coming out on top of another big piece, big um, gateway piece. And once that gateway piece comes out, that's when we will start being 
more public based or a more public based firm. Like I said, from the beginning, we we desire to be more industry based. We talk to that we talk directly to who we want to work with because it's easier for us and we don't have to do too much marketing. But then once we handle that data level, then we'll become more public based because we want to make this information available to students. From the very beginning, you should start it's 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 in Africa that you see a lot of people going to school just to go and get employed by somebody, right? We, from the very educational level, you should start thinking about, okay, what is something I can try doing after I'm out of school? Maybe not everybody can start their own business. Maybe not everybody can be their own entrepreneur. But then if you have a hit rate of one out of nine or one out of 50, we're golden, right? We'll do, we'll do a lot of things. So that's what we're trying to. That's what we're trying to. Um, that's what we're trying to motivate. Right? We're trying to cultivate. Right. The more information you make available to the people, the more likely you have people get inspired. Because if lithium doesn't inspire you, silicon might inspire you. Titanium might inspire you. Gold might inspire you. Something else might inspire you. And then the more. And another aspect of AI that comes in is we have to stop thinking about one use for a raw material. Usually what we think about for raw material is, oh, cocoa, it goes into cosmetics and it goes into beverages and chocolate, right? And I think about other uses for the husks and all those kind of things. What can this be used for? What can this be used for? What can that be used for? So that every end product or every waste material can be used for something else. Instead of just thinking about where to go and dump the waste. Because if I, I, did, I, did, uh, I did physics and I did, a bill. Okay, and with every science today, we know that energy cannot be created or destroyed. If you have something, if you have something in an equation, right? If you have something in any phase of an equation, it can be a valuable raw material, a valuable input for another process. So the more research and development that happens on those stages, the more AI-influenced research and development that happens in those stages, we then realize that, okay, we can cut down on even the waste that we're producing. Because what we thought was waste before is becoming a raw material for somebody else's industry. So then you can create a chain of industries that make use of everybody else's waste, right? So instead of just me producing cosmetics, the waste material is going to something over here. It's going to something over here. And then at the end of the day, you minimize the waste. You drop it because, I mean, where else are we going to put it? We're on the planet. <laughs> over here. The billionaires, the billionaires, and those people—they want to run away from space. Not everybody can go, so we have to start thinking about what we're going to do. <laughs> but even that space is not yet a guarantee, one hundred percent. So yeah. this is the only home that can be that we are sure that we are here. Yes. Yeah. All right. Now, clear the industries. Tell me, what is the future? What do you? Where do you see this company, this group of company, this network in the in the near future? Right. So, um, like I mentioned, right, even though AI and IoT is the gateway, what we want to do is we want to go into more um, experimental tech, right? So basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to set up a couple of, uh, this is why we're partnering a lot with other firms. We're trying to set up a couple of products that bring in funds into the company. And when those funds come in, it's not like we're just going to, you know, balloon the valuation of the firm, start spending money and all. All is vanity. <laughs> All is vanity. All our funds goes back into 
the, the developmental work that we need on the continent. Because like I said, we have a resource advantage here and we need to invest into research and development and what from, what um, radical waste materials can be used to do, right? So basically we're looking at um, fields like, like I mentioned, right? Bio, biotech and those kind of things, right? All these raw materials, is there a way they could be used in the biotech industry? All these pharmaceutical stuff that's happening, is there a way that they could be used in the, in the biotech um, in the biotech setup, and we're looking to help other engineers, right? Other, um, other creatives, other, um, other ingenious people who can also find those solutions that we're missing. Maybe we're not, we're overlooking. So we invest in the R and D, right? We put money into the R and D so that they can develop those experimental out of the blue stuff. Because like what like I'm saying, right? We need to stop thinking about if we want to solve the environmental crisis. We need to stop thinking about something like an environmentally friendly shoe. That's fine. But like it's just that it's just one out of ten options of shoes. We need to start thinking about something that will actually touch the problem or actually affect the problem, right? In order to do that, we need to invest into these kind of weird inventions or weird wacky stuff. It's been a long time since we had a weird wacky invention, right? And I would love to see that in future, right? Instead of us, we Africans waiting for a cure for something or a solution for something to, coming from abroad. We become the people who create that that cure. We become the people who create that ingenious device that pushes humanity to a next level. Like I said, clade industries is clade. The word clade means species, right? So we're trying to push the species forward. So that's the next step. Investing in that um, experimental out of the blue tech that pushes humanity into the next frontier. The first frontier was electricity. We went into networking and all those kind of things. The computer frontier came in. People like Apple have revolutionized those spaces. We we just we don't want to just revolutionize an existing space. We want to create something new, right? Because like I said, we have a resource advantage on this continent, meaning you can test with more things. You have a wider range of things to test with. If anybody should be going into research and development and experimental R&D, it should be Africa because you can source every raw material that's is random over here. For example, we heard about um, graphene batteries being developed in the UK. Right? That's a lot of graphite de uh, deposits and all those kind of things in Africa. But then who's testing for that? Everybody's thinking about what they're going to eat tomorrow and companies that bring them money and enrich them and all those kind of things. Right? So that's what I want to do. I want to do, I, I, my, my firm and I, we, we've come together and we've decided that we want to do those things. Those things are actually for humanity, right? Actually, push us to the next step and actually, should I say, make use of those things that, are, that usually harm nature, but that would have previously harmed nature. Right? It's more to, more to change that, that um, idea around things that, oh, if you want to industrialize or if you want to modernize, you have to break, take away all the trees and all those kind of things and build concrete jungles, right? No, building things that are don't think that's sustainable is the, is the whole purpose of everything. So yeah, so stuff like nanotech, stuff like biomedtech, stuff like medical IoT, all those kind of things is where we'll move into after the base AI setup is done. Because the AI is what's going to help us to understand the results that are coming in. Like I said, I don't want to make mistakes two, three, four, five times, right? I, I, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And when I get when I get something wrong, I want to get it. Anyway, I think you need a little bit of explanation. I don't know how you can be a perfectionist uh, in um, 
in science, it, it's something that's as delicate yeah, as this. So help me understand it. Yeah, that's why that's why the first step for me was AI. Because if I'm missing something, I want something that can help me spot that thing that I'm missing instantly. Right? Or like at least help shorting my, my um, how do you call it, my loop of mistakes or my chain of mistakes. Because like I said, right, the more resource you waste, the more nature buys back. So I want to reduce the amount of resource that's being wasted in my testing, right? So I don't want to have to test 500 times. And every time I test, there's this waste that's being produced that I don't know how to deal with. So instead of that, if there's something that can be avoided, if there's a mistake that can be avoided next time, I'll do whatever is possible to make that, that possible. And how can I ensure that? By having an AI system, or by having those data analytics algorithms that help me. So basically, in the scientific study or in the scientific process, you hypothesize, you test your hypothesis, you track the data, and then you rehypothesize, and then you retest, and go again and again and again. Right? If you have an AI system that can help you realize that, okay, these hypotheses were not sustainable to begin with, right? You avoid those. You try to mitigate your waste, right? So once you at least come, at least if you're going to go back to a field test, right, you should have come to you should have come to a reduced situation. You don't have to bomb 50 islands to realize that, okay, this system is probably not the, at its best position, for example, right? After we have to find a, a better, we have to find a best, better way of inventing, or we have to find a better way of engaging creativity so that it doesn't hurt people and it doesn't hurt nature. That's, that's, that's basically, I think that's where my perfectionism stems from. The fact that I, I just don't like seeing waste and I don't like seeing wasted potential. So <laughs> I, I want to utilize as much efficiency on everything as possible. All right, colleagues. Thank you so much for that. Now, <clears throat> I, I see you like uh, the young uh, Elon Musk that is coming out with big dreams in Africa, and that is beautiful. We're going to have to, you know, we need to be courageous to challenge what is around us, no? We need something new, of course, something new to improve on what, is, what we already have. Now, what are the challenges of AI and data collision? Okay, what are the challenges of your type of industry in Africa? Right. So, like I said, right, um, usually people will say data centers and all those kind of things. I, just, I didn't see data centers as a challenge. I didn't see networking as a challenge. I saw it as a, a chance to find a new way around things. So, because I realized that networking and, um, how do you call it, data storage would be a bit of a problem. We found another way around it by having the local service and by having the solar stuff providing energy because energy was also a, a challenge that you think about. So I usually see challenges as ways to even differentiate yourself from what's already on the market, right? Because what's on, already on the market depends on A, B, or C. Mine doesn't. I saw it as a way around that. The real challenge I found was people buying into the idea or people understanding that look like i said right getting a Ghanaian or getting somebody over here to understand that look, you need the smart security system and not a dog right is was something that was a strange challenge for me because you would talk to somebody and say oh but my dog is barking my dog is making noise man my dog is doing this uh, yeah it was fine all i have to do is feed it right you talk to it to person and you find all these answers but it's, it's, it's quite feels quite strange but then the perspective that identity crisis 
it's, a, it's the main challenge that most entrepreneurs face here. Because even when you're trying to solve a problem, like I said, when you, fit, when you solve a problem in uh, the UK and the United States and those kind of things, they're thinking about how it would improve their quality of life before they think about the cost and all those kind of things. Cost comes in, but if they think about how to improve their quality of life, they would buy a, a, a climate-friendly shoe or a net zero shoe because they hear that it would help with the global warming fight. Not because it's cheaper or not because it's anything, just because they hear it will help with the global warming fight. But then over here, you talk to somebody about global warming and all this kind of thing, nah, how much does it cost? You know, that's the, <laughs> that's the first question. How much does it cost? And all, what's all these kind of things, right? Oh, maybe and, there, there are reasons yeah. for that too, maybe. Pardon? Yeah. Uh, and are there reasons? Okay, yeah. Yeah, and that's where that's where stuff like networking comes in. I think I think the easiest the easiest way around the identity crisis currently, as a, as a, a startup or as an individual, is the network, because that's what I realized helped the people who are self-made billionaires and self-made millionaires on the continent, because they found a network of people and they traded within their network. That's why money keeps circulating among certain rich people, right? Because they know the people that they will go to for everything. He knows who he will go to for his tech. He knows who he will go to for the construction. He knows who he will go to for everything, right? So on every stage, he's going to that person. So you, the newcomer in the industry, you don't have a chance to get into his pocket because he knows his person. He knows his guy. Even if you come with a, in with a new solution or a new way around doing things, you just pick your solution and give it to his guy. I've been in a room where that happened before. Somebody literally picked somebody's um, business plan and gave it to me. That's, oh, can you do something better with it? because I knew the person, because I was close enough with the person, right? So yeah, that's where the trust comes in. That's where the networking side of things come in. If you have a good enough network, you can go around the, the mentality of people. Because once again, we're very communal people. Even if somebody doesn't believe in your idea, just because you are in their network and you are affiliated with them, sometimes they'll buy into your thing before they start to realize, okay, this thing is actually more valuable than I thought it was initially. Right. So, yeah, that's that's one way around that mentality thing. And what I'm trying to do is in as much as maybe I've been I'm, I'm not one of those people who say, oh, I started from the gutters here, I started from the slums here and all this kind of thing. My parents have done really well for me. My parents have helped me to get to where I am. Right. They've given me everything possible to try and get here. When I when I said I wanted to go to Manchester University, they made sure that paying for that bill was not a difficult thing. When I say I want to go somewhere, or when I say I want to try something, they back me, right? But then there are a lot of people who might not have that, you know, that advantage or that um, infrastructure around them. So I'm trying to open up the circle for people, right? By helping to solve the identity crisis that the consumers have, by having them believe in African products more, by then having them believe in African-made things more, by having them believe in African youth more, I open up the market to other youth that's coming in, right? Because now we have a market that's more open-minded to whatever you have to come and tell them, right? And also, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put the young, uh, how do you call it, my fellow people on a pedestal. So we're setting up stuff like Discord channels, we're setting up stuff like Clubhouse rooms to try and get them to come and talk about what they have in mind and what they want to do, right? So that once they get to talk about what they have in mind and what they want to do, the investors and all these startups and all these people, right? All these entrepreneurs get to see them and get to work together with them. They, I, I'm trying to help them build their network on their end um, 
so that they try, they also get around these problems that they might face and might frustrate them into giving up. Right? So that's what um how do you call it? Once again, when I see when I see problems, I see it as an opportunity to try and be different, right? Or to try and um be dynamic, right? So I notice this problem in the mentality side of things. I notice this problem in the in the closed loop of money exchange side of things. And I realize, okay, no, let me try and let me try and set up this, let me try and set up this uh, thing that first of all changes the identity crisis that we're having on the ground in the consumer level. And also try and open up the circle with the people who have the money so that people who have ideas can meet those people. So that's, those are the two things that we should be thinking about when it comes to problem solving in Africa. Every time pe people are thinking about problem solving over here, they think about, oh, the tech, all this, all that, all that. My time, I don't think I need to remind anybody that the first time somebody was setting up any tech thing abroad, they didn't start with that tech already existing. They built the infrastructure. They partnered with people who built the infrastructure. They actually went out to solve the problem. Because in going out to solve the problem, somebody else can even find something that they can build to help you get your thing done. Right? I talked to Cited in Main One, for example, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're building data centers in Ghana and Africa. So even if you want to store your data in Ghana and Africa, you can do that. Right? If I didn't go out to go and meet them, or if I didn't make myself available, how do they even know? How do they even know that somebody needs data centers in Ghana? How do they know that somebody needs data centers in Africa? They were just thinking, ah, yes, let's just continue building data centers abroad. Why not? That's where it's been done before, right? So yeah, you need to avail yourself. Um, so yeah, that's that's I, I maybe I might struggle to see any real problems in any other side of things. Another thing is maybe you need to think about how your team dynamic is and the fact that it shouldn't feel like I'm the idealist and everybody else is just an employee. Because if you make it feel that way, everybody feels like, oh, okay, it's your idea. If it dies, I mean, I get paid, right? If it doesn't die, great, I still get paid, right? But then if you make it feel like a team effort, a vision, right? I started talking to my people before we graduated university, started getting them engaged. I started talking to a few of my funders and all of that. I think that, look, we need to solve this problem. We need to get this thing done. And if we don't make a move, nobody will. Right. So we came together and we we're like, okay, look, we're gonna do this. We're gonna we're gonna go with this idea. We're gonna go together as a team. We're gonna work together. Right. If you build that team and and everybody's more passionate about you than the solution alone, even if you change the solution 10, 20 times, I did, I haven't had to change my solution that many times. But then because of the perfectionist team. But then if <laughs> if you if if you if you if you even if, if you have to pivot and change your solution 10, 20 times. Because the people who are with you are, you know, dedicated to working together with you and believe in you before the project, they will be with you whether you change it two thousand times. They'll believe in your goals, right? They'll believe in what you're trying to do. They believe in your effort. But then, if you are just, oh, I'm employing you to come work for me. Every time you change ideas, so somebody think, ah, this guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. Or this guy doesn't even know the vision he has, right? All so right. yeah. Now Talking of visual, let's talk also of how did you learn about managing people? I, I'm 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 not going to say I started from the gutter or something. I'm a bit I'm in a bit of a privileged position because when I said I wanted to do my first internship, my mom literally helped me get secure that internship. Right? She was like, "Oh, these guys, these kind of guys, if you want to work with them, this is what they're looking for. This is what they want to hear." Right? And from the very beginning, I'm a firstborn in my family, so from the very beginning, I've been kind of like 
pushed into, you know, oh yeah, first born, you have to try this, you have to do that, right? And I, I, at the beginning, I thought like, okay, fine, I'm, I'm probably like an experiment child for my sibling <laughs> because when they push me into something and it doesn't work, my sibling will realize that, okay, no, this is the thing that doesn't work, so I'm not going to do that. And it felt like that for a long time because my little brother is, is brilliant, right? Anytime he sports that, okay, big brother made these mistakes, right? He doesn't make those same mistakes. And I, I love that. I love that. You don't need to repeat the mistakes of somebody else, right? So how do you call it? I'm a firstborn. I started in my first leadership role in junior high school, right? Um, when I was uh, 14, right? Um, I was the assistant um, school, pre- school prefect, right? And then from that very angle, I got to, real- just from that young age, I got to realize, okay, People, people, um, how do you call it? People receive orders this way, or people receive instructions this way. And um, how do you call it? If you want to talk to people, if you want to be able to relate to people, this should probably be your leadership style. But that was in concept for a very long time in my head. That was just um, my my perspective of how things were working. I started reading up a bit on it and educating myself. Information is very key. So I started. I read a lot of things on that. And I what one thing I did which will feel weird to a lot of people is for about two years as a biology student I dived deep into history like very deep into history um <laughs> European history Asian history um, how do you call it the past of China past of Japan all those kind of all those kind of historical stories Greek history just random right a lot of African history as well which is why I, I keep talking about identity crisis and all those kind of things. I would go to my granddad and just like, <laughs> just like worry him with questions, right? Or, or where do we come from? Or oh, you're from the Sunak clan here, you're from this, you're from that, you're from that, this is the history of a clan. This is where a, a crab cuts a bed and all those kind of weird stories. Just ask, right? Because I, I, I'm how do you call it? I grew up, I grew up around old people a lot. I, my grandmom, um, my grandma and her friend, her friend was um, an author, right? So she would come around, she would tell her stories and all those kind of things. So I was, so when I, when I was young, right, I was very good with the story writing and all those kind of things. And then I put it aside for a bit because I, lo- I loved sports. So I went into sports, put, put the story writing aside for a bit, went into sports, and then picked the story writing up again later on. And for two years, as a biology student in senior high, I just learned history. Learned about other people, learned about other leaders, dived deep into conspiracy theories and all those kind of things, just to know. Even just conspiracy to know theory things. also. <laughs> yeah, just because I'll see, I'll see, I'll see, I'll see, I'll read like a magical. I used to read on, I used to read on platforms like JSTOR and Google Scholar, right? And I'll see them reference something, and I'm like, why aren't you giving information on this thing if you are referencing? So I'll go and look for that thing, right? I'll go and look for that thing. I'll go and like look, look around, snoop, snoop around, and I'll find that thing, and then I'll find another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and then the conspiracy theories start to pop up. I'll just read those for fun. But then, once again, for a long time, this was still my own concepts from like reading history and like experiencing stuff myself. And in senior high school, I decided not to take up any leadership role because I decided to watch, right? Um, I got offered the chance to be for two um, uh, prefectorial rules there, but I decided not to take any of them up because I wanted to watch. I wanted to watch how other people were leading. Right, so I just, I just randomly like just watch people, ask questions, interact, and all those kind of things. Talk to my seniors and all those kind of just random stuff. 
right? And then when I went into, when I came into university, right, Shetty has this leadership program, it's a four-year leadership program. So it's a four-course leadership program, right? So you take leadership one through four, and aside from that, Shetty offers other African history and African philosophy courses that you can take. And I, I decided to take those African courses. I decided to take all the, all the leadership courses. I decided to take um, econs and financial management as well, just to edify myself. Right? So through those leadership courses, I, decided, I realized that, okay, there are different types of leaders. There are servant leaders. There are um, visionary leaders. There are tyrant leaders. And so many kind of things, right? There are people pleasers. So those are the four main types of leaders. And initially, I was like, oh, no. I'm probably a visionary because I see things and I try to execute things and all those kind of things. But, but what I realized from practicing, so every time there was a group project or something, we do a lot of group projects uh, and when, when I was in university, right? When there was a group project or something, I just tried to lead or try to, you know, help pivot with the team and try to adjust my leadership style as I went on from first year. And what I realized was because of, once again, the perfectionist gene, right? And that's, I think that thing, kind of came from my mom because my mom likes it when you do something right from the very beginning rather than you having to do something and here comes to tell you over and over again so what i realized was that from that very beginning unless i'm no maybe i'm not a visionary leader because i want to be involved in every stage of everything i want to at least understand what's happening at every stage so that if there's something that needs correcting there's something that needs changing i can make an input to that it's not like something goes wrong and i don't know what to do they don't know what to do and everybody's just confused, right? So I, I realized that, no, maybe servant leadership is my thing. So I tried servant leadership. I tried, okay, we set up the plan together. We talk about the plan, we discuss it in a round table format. Then we go into execution. And when we go into execution, I would try to help everybody. I'll be open to everybody. If you have a question, you ask me, we go on from there. Right? And I realized how well that worked for two years. So I used that. I didn't try any other leadership model after that because it worked so well for me and I was so comfortable into, with servant leadership. And another thing about servant leadership for me was that I got to understand people's, should I say, problems and perspectives of things easier. I got to understand the human side of things easier. But somebody wasn't comfortable doing um, setting up something, or somebody wasn't comfortable with a type of you know, programming system, I could see the frustration happening, right? Okay, this person is probably not comfortable doing this. Maybe try something else, right? This is probably not your wheelhouse. Maybe try something else, come back, or take a break, come back, or those kind of things, right? So seeing those things on that level, you start to realize that, okay, this is my thing, right? Because, um, how do you call it? Talking to people, interacting with people, and getting people to network and work together was something that I really liked. Right. So yeah, from that level, I, I stuck with servant leadership and in setting up the firm, um, I do, it, before setting up the firm in third year, I decided to take an internship with a couple of startups because people usually think if you want to take an internship, you have to go to the established companies like the Googles, the Amazons, the, the, um, how do you call it, the Microsoft and those kind of things. Those, co those companies are good if you want to learn how to fit into a company learn how to work together with teams and those kind of things. But in those kind of companies, because they're already set up or because they're already structured, you don't get exposed to a lot. You get exposed to only the things that you need to know, right? So if you need to go and come and do networking over here, they know exactly what you want to come and do, come and do networking, right? But then if, if, you, if you intern with a startup or if you intern with a firm that is still finding their legs, right? Um, an incubator and all those kind of things, right? 
start to realize that, okay, so these are the things that usually hurt startups when they're, when they're making that climb up. So I, I interned with, uh, I, I did this uh, part-time gig as part of school with this uh, game dev startup, startup, right? And I, was, I tried to stay really close to the CEO. He was a very nice guy, always a serv- also a servant, you know, he's, he was Israeli, right? Very close to him, I'm always asking questions, always talk to him about things and all those kind of things. If he had a question, he would ask me as well and I'll suggest something and we'll try it out. So through that experience and through experiences, you know, just talking to other startup leaders, interacting with all those kind of people. Because once again, um, I started young on the servant side of things. Just come in, come and do your job and go, right? And then when I came into university, I was like, okay, I want to try the leadership side of things. Come in, come and help with ideation. And then we work together. No set um, opening and close hours. People usually assume that CEOs have like, uh, how do you call it, short times so that they can do whatever they want. It's because in the beginning <laughs> stages, in the beginning stages, you can work for 24 hours continuously. <laughs> in the static You're cycle, just learning, you're just accumulating time. information. Yeah. Unless, unless, you are, unless you are a child of somebody who has set up their company and you inherited it. In the starting phases of setting up a company, sometimes you can work for weeks without anything, right? And then as, as time goes on, I think become more sorted out become more comfortable, you do less, right? So what, what I realized was that, okay, this was what, this was what I needed to understand. And this is what I needed to take into setting up my own term. Because by that time I had already realized that, look, I want to set up a firm that solves problems in Africa. I was tired of just seeing people complaining about stuff and just not doing anything about it. And every time government has to come and clean gutters and clean roads and fix roads and do A and do B. Oh, no. I wanted to do something about it for once, right? So yeah, I decided to shadow startups and startup CEOs for a bit. I decided to learn a lot from them. I started to learn a lot from experience, right? Because regardless of how young you are, you can compile experience. You can compile a lot of different experiences. You just need to sacrifice a bit of free time, a bit of, you know, sleep time and all those kind of things, right? Oh, if all our friends are chilling, we'll be doing other things. But then the, the, the takeaway is when your friends are working or when your friends are now doing their nine to five, you have a firm that's running for you and you can go and chill too. So, <laughs> so it's a give and take. You can, give up, you can give up for now and chill later. Or you can chill now and be in a corner later. <laughs> you know, everybody should choose their poison. That's basically it, right? So, yeah. I decided to give up that time. I don't, I don't mind giving up that time because I, once again, I don't mind giving up time for people, right? And yeah, did the hard, did the hard hours and then started with my firm. And in starting my firm, what I realized was everybody has different perspectives. Everybody has different experiences as well. So roundtable format, team format, if we want to work on a project, we come together, we ideate. I talk about my perspective from my experience level. You talk about your experience and then we bring it together. And as part of that as well, from my experience working in the industry and, you know, shadowing all these CEOs, I'd met people who were inspiring to me. So I decided to have them as advisors for some of my, my, um, my side of things, right? So particularly if I have a networking team, right? And I, I met somebody networking in Canada. So I had them in a direct mentorship with the person in Canada. So basically, it's like setting up a mentor for somebody in my firm because I want that person to develop to become like the person in Canada, right? Instead of sending 
instead of uh, how do you call it, waiting for years for him to gain the knowledge himself, I link him straight to the source of the knowledge. And he gets that from an industry standpoint. Instead of like, school gives you a lot of, you know, random information, some stuff you will never use again in your life. But then talking to somebody in industry, you get that direct information stream. So that's why I decided to do, um, bringing in all those experienced people, the old, the elderly, they have so much knowledge packed up. They have so much knowledge and they want to talk to people. They want to Absolutely. engage with people. If you go to them, they will talk to you for hours for free. They won't come and charge you money for, uh, how do you call it, webinars and uh, speeches. And all. They won't charge you to come and stand on the stage and come and tell you things that you probably already there, there is a reason that the, in Africa it is said that old people are treasured. They are, they are living library. Don't we, should, we should really treasure them. Exactly, exactly. And meanwhile, the people that you pay for their tickets to sit in their rooms, you probably know what they are talking about. You probably heard it somewhere else. They're going to tell you the same thing. But then these old guys will tell you everything for free. For free. Just, just spend time with me and I'll tell you everything. I mean, okay, time is money, so maybe it's not exactly free. But then you're getting so much in exchange, right? You're getting so much, getting so much knowledge, right? So yeah, that's, that's what I decided to do. I decided to Take, take use of that because, you know, spending time with these people, it's, it's, it's not going to take too much away from you. You know, they're, they're family, <laughs> you know, they're family. We can't, we can't keep watching people die with the knowledge in their head like <laughs> <laughs> And this is also, I think, one of the things that is, is interesting about this data collation, though, because we go there and try yeah. to make out the data so that it can be useful for generation to come. It's, it's, it's really yeah. important. All right, now looking at leadership, uh, who is your role model? Okay, leadership, not only in terms of politics, but also in terms of uh, administrating of, uh, of a company. Who is your role model that you are, you are looking after? <laughs> my, okay. Um, let me just say this. Let me just say this. My role model is my dad. I, my dad's my role model. That's <laughs> <laughs> my, my role model is my dad. My dad is, my dad is the head of the anesthesia the anesthesia department at, um, he was the head of the anesthesia department at Kolobu. He has moved to the University of Ghana Hospital in Ghana, right? Um, and his leadership style is amazing. When you go around the hospital and you see how people interact with him and all these kind of things, it's just brilliant to watch. When he's talking to his patients, right? He's an anesthetist. He usually talks to them. He usually administers their first, you know, dosage before they sleep, before the surgery, right? When he talks to them, they feel so calm. Even people in pain, people in se severe pain, you can see people who are in severe stress, right? He talks to them and he makes them feel calm, makes them feel assured that this is going to go all right, they're going to be fine. And they instantly just feel that coming in. And then, yeah, it, it goes well. He barely loses a patient. I think, I think ever since I was born, he has lost two patients. Right? And that is, for the number of people he has worked on, is amazing, right? And even when you see him, even when you see him, the way he carries himself around the hospital, right? I, I like I said, I wanted to do medicine initially in the starting phases of my my life, right? So I used to follow him a lot. When you see the way he carries himself around there, and everybody just respects him and just and just um loves him, right? it's it's just amazing. It's just it's just really amazing. So that that's where I took my that's where I took my um. That's where I took my leadership style from. That's, that's where I got my, that's where I got my leadership experience from. 
That's yeah. interesting. All right. So, yeah, this is the last thing I'm going to ask you now. We have really spent some time here talking about, of course, important things. This is a very important conversation. I really treasure it a lot. Now, what would be your final statement here? It might be maybe a message or something that I, I should have asked you. I didn't ask you just to conclude the conversation. Yeah. Please go. Oh, all I would say is if we don't start treasuring what we have, somebody else will come and treasure it first. If we don't start valuing what we have on the continent, somebody else will come and take it. So basically all I'll say is we need to come together and find that self-identity. Self start believing in what we have for once, right? We can't always believe in somebody else's you know, setup, somebody else's infrastructure. We start believing in what we have and start solving the problems around it. Start, start making our home comfortable enough. We can't always run away and go and have people ask us, oh, why are you leaving your place? It's so good, right? You make this place comfortable, and then when you travel, when you get to the foreign land or whatever, they realize that, oh, I'm just coming here to come and vacate or come and learn something or come and like just mingle with friends. I'm not coming here to come and look for anything here because my home is so comfortable, you know? That's what we need to strive for. That's what we need to look up to. And that way we have a place we can proudly and confidently call home. Rather than always having a situation where, oh, you ran away from some country and when you make it, when you make it before you say, oh, I used to be this person and then I ran away from there. Not, it's not the best, honestly. So yeah, let's start believing in ourselves. Let's start believing in self-identity. Let's put together that message. Right? And let's network. Let's work together. Room wasn't built in a day, nor was it built by one person. As one of my partners said once, room wasn't built in a day, nor was it built by one person. We might not build Africa into some massive city tomorrow. But then we, if we take one step, if we take that one step together, We'll be sure where we can go. We'll probably, we'll probably be Wakanda level <laughs> by the time we're done. Well, well, that is another conversation for another day. That is going to be very interesting <laughs> because that, we didn't talk about infrastructure in Africa. We didn't talk about history in Africa. Those are things that I also yeah, see yeah. that you are interested in. No? So that would certainly be yeah. for another, another day. So thank you so much, yeah. dear colleagues. I really appreciate the conversation. Um, thank thank you. you for your time. Thank, thanks for the platform. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehe podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehe Ewafo. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.